Some of our staff really love Patrick Lencioni's books. Um, anybody here ever read any Lencioni? You've read any of Lencioni? Okay, a few of you have, big fans. All right. Um, one of our leaders gave me a copy of this book of Lencioni's, The Advantage. Uh, it's a pretty good book. I want to read to you from the very beginning. This is fascinating. He starts the book this way. The single greatest advantage any company can achieve is organizational health. Yet it is ignored by most leaders, even though it is simple, free, and available to anyone who wants it. And then he tells a story. I was attending a client's leadership conference, sitting next to the CEO. This wasn't just any company. It was and still is one of the healthiest organizations I have ever known and one of the most successful American enterprises of the past 50 years. In an industry plagued with financial woes, customer fury, and labor strife, this amazing company has a long history of growth and economic success, not to mention fanatical customer loyalty. Moreover, its employees love their jobs, their customers, and their leaders. When compared with others in the same industry, what this company has accomplished seems almost baffling. As I sat there at the conference, listening to one presentation after another, highlighting the remarkable and unorthodox activities that have made this organization so healthy, I leaned over and quietly asked the CEO a semi-rhetorical question. I asked, why in the world don't your competitors do any of this? After a few seconds, he whispered back almost sadly, you know, I honestly believe they think it's beneath them. And there it was. Close quote. It is beneath them. I agree with Lencioni. I have personally found that most organizations, from businesses to governments to churches, don't maximize organizational health. The main reason is that they don't understand or aren't willing to engage in what Christians call servant leadership. Especially the ones unfamiliar with the Bible don't get it. They think building a healthy organization is somehow beneath them. They think that health and unity are somehow beneath them. Lenciani goes on to list and discuss these hallmarks of a healthy organization. Look at this. Healthy organization has minimal politics, minimal confusion, high morale, high productivity, and low turnover. Don't you wish every organization in your life had those hallmarks? Your business, your country club, your school, your church? It can and it's not really that hard. It just takes a little attention and some tough communication. Let me show you. No, we're not going to read Mr. Lencioni. We will quote from his book. It is fine, and I recommend it. However, I have a better source for us to study, one that dealt with the same issues in a much deeper fashion. All right? It's in your Bible. It's called the book of 1 Corinthians. True story. 1 Corinthians is Lencioni times three. Okay? Turn there. Let's read chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, I'm with Kephas, I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul, who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say they were baptized in my name. I, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize. Not with clever words, so the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. As you see in your notes, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. On the left-hand side, we start with our notes. This, I summarize that text with this statement, unhealth is seen in divisiveness. 
main hallmark of unhealth is always divisiveness. Paul points out that Chloe's people report rivalries. We don't know exactly who Chloe was, but members of her household, and by the way, that could be a church that met in her house, or it could mean actual members of her family, report about divisions in Corinth. Now, I probably should cover here Paul's contacts and correspondence with the, the Corinthians. I'm going to show you a list. It's Possibly not perfect, because after his first visit in 51 AD, Paul's interactions with Corinth have to be deduced from various references. Please don't worry about catching all of this. I just want you to get the big idea that there was a lot of contact between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church. Starts in 51 AD. <clears throat> 51 AD, Paul first comes to Corinth. He stays about 18 months, pretty long time. In 52 AD, Paul sails across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla, the, the Jews that are fellow believers that he met in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla stay in Ephesus, and there they disciple this remarkable, gifted young orator, a teacher named Apollos from Alexandria in Egypt. Paul leaves there, and he goes on to Jerusalem. In 53 AD, Apollos, now fairly well discipled, is sent back across the sea to Corinth, and Paul comes back from Jerusalem to Ephesus, and he stays here the longest he ever stays anywhere. He stays in Ephesus two and a half years, uh, about 30 months. Paul writes a letter from Ephesus that the Corinthians misunderstand. Uh, that letter is lost to us. We don't have it, but we know it was the misunderstood letter. Then, what we just read, Chloe sends word back to Paul in Ephesus about all these divisions in the church in Corinth. At the end of the letter, we find that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus also bring Paul specific questions about issues that are dividing the Corinthian church. So, 54 to 55 AD, Paul writes this letter. He writes 1 Corinthians in response to what he's heard. It goes on. Now, the church continues to struggle. So, Paul makes a second visit to Corinth. This is called the painful visit, and I bet it was, bet it was painful. Paul also sent another letter to Corinth, <clears throat> a disciplinary letter that he sent by Titus. Now, back in Ephesus, where Paul is, there was a huge riot. It's called the Silversmiths Riot. It's very famous. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. In essence, a bunch of people who made idols got furious because so many people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, they weren't buying idols anymore. So the silversmiths got all mad, they're losing all their money, and they had this riot and tried to kill Paul. Paul was sent out of town, he escaped. He left Ephesus, and he went up to Macedonia, up in the north of this area. There he met Titus, and Titus brought him good news. He brought good news about the general well-being, finally, of this Corinthian church. However, he brought bad news that there was a group in the church that was very opposed to Paul. So, in 56 to 57 AD, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in response to that news and made his third visit to the church. Now, in each case, when Paul writes or when he visits, unhealth is involved. Usually, it was because of unhealthy conflict in the church, and don't you dare think that only happens in other churches or only in other places and times. All churches are subject to rivalries because of inherent human factors, and we'll discuss those in a moment. Divisiveness is a continual threat for human beings, and it always has been. A generation ago, Speed Lees of the Alban Institute made a great observation. He said, knowing conflict may come helps. A football receiver often knows he's going to be hit immediately after he makes a catch. Knowing that doesn't lessen the impact of the hit, but it does help him hold on to the ball and sometimes even maintain his balance, elude the tackler, and gain some extra ground. Likewise with churches. If they know division regularly attacks, they'll be more likely to keep their balance and gain forward progress, close quote. Notice that Paul, like a good coach, describes how to keep the church balanced. He doesn't just say, you're off base in your conflict. He describes what forward progress requires. Look, look at your text. Agreement, no divisions, united, same understanding, same convictions. That unity is what makes for great organizational health. 
Unity reduces politics, reduces confusion and turnover. Unity raises morale. It, it raises productivity and forward progress. Unity, however, listen very carefully, is not the same thing as unanimity. This is not a dictatorship where all opposing voices are silenced. God's ideal for his organization involves reason and dialogue. Otherwise, interactive terms wouldn't be highlighted in your text. Ideas like agreement, understanding, conviction. These are dialogue terms. I want to just give you one example, okay? Uh, look at the word that my Bible translates conviction. It's the Greek word nome, which really doesn't have anything to do with a gnome. I just thought it was funny. Um, <laughs> nome means... Nome means the intelligent comprehension of something. This is a word for, for understanding. This is a word for judgment. This is not demanded unanimity. This is reasonable thought work that inspires unity. Churches are especially notorious for confusing unity with unanimity. Lencioni, by the way, in his book, he calls this artificial harmony. It's got a whole chapter on it. Um, and, and look at what he says. He says, nowhere does this tendency toward artificial harmony show itself more than in mission-driven nonprofit organizations, most notably churches. People who work in these organizations tend to have a misguided idea that they cannot be frustrated or disagreeable with one another. What they're doing is confusing being nice with being kind, close quote. So go back to the question we referenced earlier. Why do divisions happen? What, what causes a collection of brethren, people who are made family by, by God's election, what causes them to either adopt fake unity, fake unanimity, or to splinter into rivalries? First and foremost, first and foremost, we lose sight of in Jesus' name. Look at verse 10. That's why Paul starts with that. In Jesus' name. Today, Christians sometimes use this phrase, in Jesus' name, like a, like a trite line that we tack on to prayer. Or, or, we, or we invoke it like a formula, like, like magical pagans used to do. This is some kind of magic formula. But that is not what it meant in the classical world. To act in someone's name was to behave as a kind of proxy, like, like an ambassador who is speaking for his king. In Jesus' name means according to Jesus' ethos, according to his commands. Losing sight of that is the number one cause of divisiveness. It always is. We become less concerned about Jesus' words and we become more focused about things that we think wrongly are closer to hand. Most often, we start idolizing humans. That's why verses 12 to 15 contain this scathing sarcasm from God. Look at the sarcasm. The Corinthians have organized themselves into factions, right? Some are rallying under the banner of Apollos, that gifted Alexandrian preacher that I told you about. Some of them are rallying under the apostle Peter uh, called Kephos here, which is, is Greek for head. He's the head. Some are, understandably, um, <clears throat> getting behind Paul because he was the founder of the church. And then the really self-righteous group says, oh no, we follow Messiah, Christ Jesus himself. Although they don't act in his name, they're not acting unified as he commanded. People always somewhat naturally gravitate toward idolizing humans. And listen carefully, leaders like it. That's why the businesses that Lencioni mentions in his book don't do anything to stop idolization because they like it. When my first Christian tool was published, I went to the massive national Christian booksellers convention in California to, to talk to pastors about what I'd written. The publisher paid for me to go and talk to pastors to sell this tool. And, uh, and so I'm there at this little area, this little tiny area in this huge place, and a lot of pastors came by to meet with me, and many of them who came there had their, their bodyguards or their entourage around them. Absolutely, completely unnecessary melange of nonsense. It really was. There was no need for a bodyguard or an entourage, but they had them all around them as they came up. 
I met with these wonderful brethren who are dorks, and, um, <laughs> and I liked some of them. I did. I liked some of them. They were, they were nice. But many of them reminded me very much of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. They, they, were, they were just, they were making a mess. They, they were rallying under some human banner and practicing divisiveness by keeping the holy man separate from the great unwashed people. And then this guy approached my table, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. And unlike all the others who had come up, and nothing against them, this guy really is famous. And he really is a, was, he's now with the Lord, a brilliant theologian, an excellent pastor. And guess what? He was alone. He was just walking along, puttering, looking at different things, and he said, I really want to hear about this. And he came and sat down, and we had the most delightful talk. We talked for a long time. Now, there were a number of things where we disagreed, important areas of theology where he is wrong. <clears throat> Seriously, we talked for quite a while, and we appreciated our differences, but he was determined, and so was I, to, to focus on our major agreement, which is Jesus and being in his name. By always keeping the focus on Christ and not on any human, we were able to delight in our unity. Why do divisions occur in churches? Number one, because we lose sight of in Jesus' name. Number two, we idolize humans instead. And number three, we lose sight of our real force. This is so cool. Okay, notice Paul's focus on doing the Great Commission. You see that, verses 14 through 17. Paul doesn't want to be caught up in this human leader nonsense. Oh, I was baptized by Paul himself. Phooey, says the apostle. He wasn't as focused on doing Jesus' Great Commission. Now, that brings up a fascinating point about all of you biblical Christians. We deal with a very strong combination of forces. We have a centripetal or unifying force and a centrifugal or, or splintering force working on us. Alec Ryrie wrote a fascinating, helpful, only slightly flawed study of Protestant Christians. Uh, I do recommend it. It's a really interesting book called The Protestants. Look what he noted. Ryrie said this, Protestantism was born in conflict, not only with the rest of the world, but with itself. Its rejection of fixed human authorities condemned it to division from the very beginning, and it has repeatedly shown a propensity to fissure into new quarreling sects. But this is not the whole story. If it were, then Protestantism would have blown itself completely to bits. But in fact, the centrifugal force spinning into sectarian chaos has been matched by a gravitational pull toward unity. Well said. Tell me this. Have you ever ridden a roller coaster or a spinning ride? Raise your hand. Have you ever ridden a roller coaster or one of those spinning rides? Okay. Uh, have you ever thrown up? No, I'm kidding. Don't, don't tell us that. <laughs> Did you feel that outward push? You know what I'm talking about? If you're on the spinning ride, you feel the outward push. If you're on the curve of the roller coaster, you feel that outward push. That's what physicists call centrifugal force, all right? But I've got news for you. Catch this. It's not real. Centrifugal force is not a real force. Totally serious here. I want to read you a quote from one of my old textbooks. This is uh, uh, Young and Friedman's University Physics, okay? Centrifugal force, which is Latin for center fleeing, is not really a force. It results from inertia, the tendency of an object to resist any change in its state of rest or motion. Centripetal force is a real force that counteracts the centrifugal force and prevents the object from flying out, keeping it moving instead with a uniform speed along a circular path, close quote. Jesus is our centripetal force. When we forget him, we panic because of what we feel. What we feel is this, this center fleeing. But our real force in theology as in physics keeps us moving together on the path. It's Jesus. Again, this explains why we call this series All for One and One for All. 
Jesus is the one real force that keeps us moving forward together. All God's people said, amen. Now, go back to the text. Let's read starting in verse 18. Uh, pick it up in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, quote from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where's the philosopher? Where's the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing that which is viewed as something. So that no one can boast in his presence. But it is from him that you're in Christ Jesus who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Isn't that magnificent prose? Uh, on the right side of your notes, you'll see our headline for this. Look there. Unhealth boasts in the wrong things. Unhealth boasts in the wrong things. Now, we need to study this as part of its larger thought section, and this is a very large thought section this week. But if you ever spend a week just reading and thinking on that paragraph alone, I tell you, it will be time well spent. The biggest idea here is that real wisdom is not found where people think it is. Jews look for signs. Now, that is less a statement about superstition, and it is more a comment about trying to make everything fit a particular slant on the Scriptures. Meanwhile, Gentiles seek wisdom from their understandable, humanistic point of view. But God is sovereign. He spoke the scriptures. He fulfills them to a detail level that we cannot comprehend. He grants wisdom that is massive, God-oriented, beyond comprehension in its scale. Imagine somebody who is interested in small things, okay? Interested in small things, uh, but has only looked at them with the naked eye. Fascinated with tiny things, but has only looked at them with the naked eye. Has never imagined or seen a microscope, okay? It's as if that's where the Hebrews of the first century were. They were using the naked eye to try and make the Bible say what they wanted. And God the Son, Messiah Jesus, shows them the world of the microscope. He goes so far beyond their tendency that it's incomprehensible foolishness to them. They cannot imagine a world that big that is beyond our perception. Meanwhile, the Greeks were intrigued by global things, right? They, they were fascinated with planets and measurements. But, of course, none of them had ever seen or even imagined a telescope. Suddenly, Jesus appears in the world as a telescope, describing an infinite sense of time, a world outside the small bubble that seems so big to human beings. This, of course, strikes the limited Gentile mind as, as foolishness. Jesus shows human beings just how small we really are. That's why humanists hate him. Rich Mullins' poetry nails it. Look what Rich Mullins wrote. Oh, we're not as strong as we think we are. We're frail. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these, our hells and our heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. The cross requires humility. The cross demands that we accept that we need saving, an admission that fallen humans detest. That's why the cross is called a stumbling block. We prefer, you know what we're like, Humans prefer to focus on what we can do and we can do well. We want to earn our way by pridefully staying in the rut that we know. 
And that crops up in all kinds of ways. Um, Lencioni describes a common problem in business. If any of you work in business, you have seen this. Look at this. Being smart is only half the equation for business success. The other half of the equation, the one that is largely neglected, is about being healthy. And yet the smart side occupies almost all the time, energy, and attention of most executives. One of the best explanations for the strange phenomenon comes from a comedy sketch I saw as a child. I remember it being part of an old episode of I Love Lucy. Ricky, Lucy's husband, comes home from work one day to find his wife crawling around the living room on her hands and knees. He asks her what she's doing. I'm looking for my earrings, Lucy responds. Ricky asks her, you lost your earrings in the living room? She shakes her head. No, I lost them in the bedroom, but the light out here is much better. And there it is. Most leaders prefer to look for answers where the light is better, where they're more comfortable in the measurable, objective, data-driven world they already understand, close quote. Measurable things are important, but they are not where you find wisdom. That's why Lencioni's business book goes on to state that healthy, get this, healthy organizations grow smarter, but it never works the other way around. That's because unhealth boasts in the wrong things. This is why science flourishes in places where biblical Christianity is practiced. Knowing the birthright of being made in the image of the creator God, Christians want to create and they want to explore, they want to investigate qualitatively and quantitatively. Being healthy in wisdom, they get smarter, which helps explain why, I think it helps explain why two-thirds of all Nobel Prizes have gone to Christians. Christians can be humble enough to recognize that wisdom can appear foolish at first. That's why real wisdom boasts only in God's calling and our belief. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says that God calls and people trust in his salvation through Jesus. That is the basis of all real health. That is the basis of all unity. That is the basis of all wisdom. Some of the Corinthian Christians were famous. Some of them were. Some were wealthy. Some were even related to the royal family. Not many, but some. And yet that doesn't matter a whit. Because none of that has anything to do with salvation, which is by God's gracious choosing through faith in Jesus. So, when you and I boast... Sadly, not if, but when. When we boast about anything, our, our spiritual gifts, our wealth, our team, our, our church, our performance, our skill, our intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum, we are missing real wisdom, aren't we? Real wisdom boasts only in God's calling and our belief. That's why in verse 31, Paul quotes from this very powerful Old Testament text, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Would you read it with me? You take the underlined text, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Thank you. I was discussing this with some friends electronically. And I received two great notes this month as I was talking about these ideas with some buddies. Uh, one of the notes I got was from Martin McDonald, who's on our pulpit team here. I liked it so much I put it in your, in your notes. Uh, Martin wrote me and he said this, Wayne, all glory belongs to God. He is the wellspring and propagator of all good, including any good found in us. The only thing we can truly take credit for is our rebellion and sin. Our boasting is plagiarism, taking credit for God's work. Why do we boast? Boasting in anything other than God allows us to associate with the object of that boast and glean a little of the glory for ourselves. When we boast in God, we have no basis for self-glorification. And yet, and this is a beautiful summary of our text, and yet, in God's beautiful way, he does and will share his glory with us. Close quote. 
The other note I got was from an old pal of mine in my childhood hometown, and he wrote me and he said this, Wayne, as our Christian brother Kerry Livgren sang with his rock group Kansas, if I claim to be a wise man, it surely means that I don't know. Carry on, wayward son, indeed. Now, read chapter two, verses one through five. When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. For I did not think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. So your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Real wisdom keeps the main thing the main thing. The key is verse two. Look, God guided Paul to stay focused on the core issue, the crucifixion of Jesus as atonement for sin. That is the foundation upon which Paul built this church. It's the message he keeps focusing on again and again and again. I need a volunteer to tell me in in one very short sentence, what is the core of your business? What is the main thing of your work? Somebody raise your hand. What's the core of your business, main thing of your work? What is it? Yes. Selling IT services. Very good. What's the core of your business, main thing of your work? Somebody else. Come on. Let me hear one. Mike, what's core of your business? Uh, Building exceptional buildings. buildings. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Exceptional in the sense that they're wonderful, not that they're they're falling over. Okay, good. Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah, and you do. You build wonderful ones. All right, now, everybody, everybody, let me ask you this. Think about the core idea of your business, whatever your work is, okay? Not anybody else, not the company as a whole, just you. How well do you do keeping that main thing the main thing? If you are exceptionally good at keeping the main thing of your business the main thing all the time, then raise your hand. It's hard, isn't it? Not many, I mean, some, we, yeah, okay, because it's hard. But it's something we must master. Listen, keeping the main thing is the main thing. That's the key to real wisdom. It is the key to real health, whether you're talking about a business or a church. This is why our business consultant, Mr. Lencioni, that we're quoting from today, says this. Look what he writes. Great leaders see themselves as chief reminding officers as much as anything else. Their two top priorities are to set the direction of the organization and then to ensure that people are reminded of that on a regular basis. Please don't misunderstand the language here in 1 Corinthians. Look, Paul could be overwhelmingly brilliant. His defense speeches in the book of Acts are, are better examples of classical rhetoric than Cicero could produce. Not exaggerating. His philosophy in the book of Colossians runs circles around Socrates and Plato. He was a genius, but Paul's greatest genius was staying on point. Corinth was a lot like Athens. It was a hotbed of philosophical thought where people loved to argue all day about nothing, kind of like you guys on social media. But Paul stayed focused in that environment on the cross of Jesus alone. This is why we mention our church mission statement all the time. That's what keeps us focused on the main thing. Let's do this. We haven't done this in a long time. If you would, uh, stand up. I know you're taking notes and doing stuff. Set your stuff down. Stand up real quickly. Let's all stand together, and let's go through the mission statement of this church. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Um, Ladies and gentlemen of Frisco Bible Church, who are we? We are redeemed community. What do we do? We do the Great Commission. How, How is that accomplished? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why do we do all this? For the glory of God. We are redeemed community doing the Great Commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. To be wise, to be healthy, to be unified as a church, you've got to keep that main thing the main thing. That's what chapter 2 is trying to teach us. All right, you may be seated. Let's read, uh, have a seat. Let's read uh, starting in verse 6. However, 
We do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they'd known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, another quote from Isaiah, what eye did not see and ear did not hear and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. And the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. I know this is a very long thought section. Thank you for staying with the text. Um, the, the point in this part is that unhealth neglects truth. Unhealth neglects truth. Real wisdom is in God's revelation. Look, God, God reveals himself in engagement with people an engagement that comes through his words and through the Lord of glory, Jesus, who became human. This is so cool. Three significant Greek words explain all this. Okay, the crux of verse seven in the original language is built around three words, three really big words. Sophia is the first one. It's wisdom. Uh, you, you've seen it. It runs throughout this passage. Sophia, Sophia, Sophia all the time. Now, Sophia is coupled with musterion. Musterion has nothing to do with, with large mammals. It means something that is real, okay, something real that is known by the one in charge and revealed to those to whom he selects to reveal it. That's what musterion means. It's something real that is there, but it's only seen by those to whom the person in charge chooses to reveal it. There are two major misunderstandings of this word. First, in English, it sounds like mystery. It sounds like something we would read in Agatha Christie, right? Not the Bible. That's very unfortunate because even though our word mystery comes from musterion, our meaning's very different. Let me, let me just summarize it this way. The English use of mystery emphasizes the unknown, whereas musterion emphasizes what is known. Uh, second misunderstanding says that Paul is teaching another form of the Greek mystery religions. These were really weird religions. Um, that is not at all what's going on here. I, I hear this sometimes from fellow academics, and it makes me very embarrassed for them. There's a massive difference. You see... The Greek mystery religions are about earning one's way to heaven through the, through the gnosis, through knowledge, special knowledge of the deity. The Bible is the exact opposite. The Bible is saying that God reveals what is real, not that people earn it. Very, very different. So Christians have this known wisdom that is revealed to them by God's choice through his own revelation, not our effort. And the third word, apocrypto, is a really ancient term. It originally meant something protected for its safety. But over time, it came to signify a reality, a reality which human beings cannot reach by ordinary perception alone. So real wisdom is from God's revelation, a reality we cannot reach by our own effort or our own perception alone. This is expanded by Paul into a doctrine called the doctrine of illumination, okay? And here it is. Doctrine of illumination is that God's spirit works with and beyond mere human perception to reveal the Bible to Christians. More on that in a moment. Recently, I shared with you one of my favorite poems. It was written by one of my students. Do you remember the story? She was in class, and she was listening to an atheist professor uh, teaching about grace in John Milton's great poem, Paradise Lost. I want you again to look at the last lines of Wendy Balavet's poem about that experience, Wendy Utley, as she was called then. Uh, she wrote, how can it, and it means the voice of this professor, how can it be so well-studied and wise in worldly things and be so blind to what is real? Poor man. Poor class who don't feel the wind in the dust of old books. That's unhealth. It neglects truth by limiting perception to humans only and refusing God's revelation. All right, now, pick it up in verse 12. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God 
so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He's not able to understand since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything. Yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone for who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Real wisdom is spiritually understood. The Holy Spirit is the pneuma, the wind that reveals the dusty old books. I one time got a very snarky letter from a non-believer who came to church one time here with her Christian husband. Came with her Christian husband and her letter berated me for not being comprehensible when I teach, which certainly can be true. But she said this, and I quote, you just spout foolishness that makes no sense. Not too long after that, she became a believer in Christ, which did not surprise me at all because anytime somebody is looking that closely that they're being that harsh, all I can think is, oh, thou protestest too much. You know, she, she was looking into it, which means that the Lord was drawing her. So she became a Christian. Not too long after she became a believer in Christ, I got another letter from her. Look what this letter said. This letter said, my heart is pierced by the scripture every day, Wayne. I still don't understand it all, but I'm, I'm changed by it anyway. I can't believe I said that you were incomprehensible when the truth was that I was insensate and uncomprehending, close quote. Paul's cobbled quote from Isaiah and the Psalms in verse 16 is especially fascinating because it brings up a really powerful point. Think, think. If we can know everything about God and understand him totally and teach him from our great wisdom, he's not much of a God, is he? People by nature want a God that we can comprehend fully and control, but that's not a God worth knowing, much less following. Instead, thank God, we have a transcendent Lord who chooses to reveal his mind to us spiritually. Unifying health accepts that truth. All right, let's close with the last part of this long thought section. It all does stand together. It needs to be taught together, but it's really long. Look at chapter three, our last part. Brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready, because you're still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like unbelievers? For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not unspiritual people? The fleshly life is tied to divisive, immature, unhealth. And thus we come full circle to the point we started. Christians can and do slide into fleshly living. That is, we become unspiritual people. As Paul points out, this especially shows up in our relationships, right? Instead of being transformed through continual renewal, we fall back on our natural practices and tendencies. Instead of, as, as Hebrews 5 puts it, instead of having our senses trained to exercise them humbly, um, we proudly fight with each other. We have got to press on past the hit of those times. It happens to every one of us when the carnal fleshliness hits us and we want to slip back into being divisive and disunifying and we must grow in the spirit so that we can understand and utilize the meanness of scripture, not always be reduced to milky surface stuff. Of course, in a place like Frisco Bible, we puff out our chests and we say inside our heads, well, thank goodness we're not like that. Our pastor uses Greek words. <laughs> he teaches whole long thought sections of the Bible. <laughs> Oh, big, fat, hairy deal. <laughs> My friends, that doesn't matter at all if we don't decide to personally keep growing up. And that doesn't matter if we don't decide to grow up together. The Corinthians had been believers in Jesus four to five years when Paul wrote this. 
think about this. They studied under likely the greatest duo of teaching that has ever existed in human history. They studied with Paul and Apollos. And yet here they are behaving like a bunch of babies. And that applies to us a whole lot more than we'd like to admit. And like them, our immaturity is exposed not in our lack of knowledge. It is exposed in our lack of unity. And thus our text completes Paul's brilliant explanation. We are to be united with the same understanding, not unspiritually separating ourselves. Let's put it in the business terms with which we started this lesson. The churches of Jesus should have all the hallmarks of healthy organizations because they can live according to real wisdom. All God's people said... Pray with me about that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. And we come to you and we confess our unhealth and our lack of real wisdom because it is exposed. It's exposed in our pride, our divisiveness, our carnal living, our surface-only learning. It's unacceptable. Lord, we, we, I, I pray that you help us. Help my brothers and sisters and, and, and me to stop focusing on those very few areas where we're really unified and really deep and really wise, and let us look at the rest of our lives where we are divisive, where we are self-righteous, where we are dealing only in our perception. We're so sorry. Please expose that and change us. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is studying with me whether in this room or anywhere around the world, I, that does not know Jesus as Savior, please draw them to you. Friend, listen, Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is, he is very God and very man. And he did indeed. It is, it is an unreducible truth. He died on that Roman cross to pay for your sin because God loves you. He loves you. You have sin and you know it. And you can't make your own way to heaven. It is beyond your effort, perception, and capacity. But God's made a way in that Jesus paid the price for your sin and then rose from the dead so that anyone who follows him could have everlasting life. Trust him right now. Receive Jesus. Believe in him for your salvation. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Raise your hand and look up at me. Let me rejoice with you. Father, I pray for all of us that we would grow, really grow in Jesus Christ and experience real wisdom and real health. I thank you for how much you've given to us in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, that unity that we studied is seen in Jesus' command about this Lord's Supper that we partake together. This is, a, this is a unifying remembrance. We're supposed to do it together. Everybody who trusts him are one in Jesus, and they have no head but him who conquered sin and conquered death. Read with me what Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians. He's gonna say later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, all together. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and partake of the bread and the cup. Please stand up and exit your row to the right, come get a bread and cup, and then go back to your seat. When everyone's served, we'll partake together.
This bread, this, this represents the very body of Jesus that was given for you and for me. Let's take in remembrance of him. And this cup represents an indivisible unity. <laughs> I think that's why Jesus has us take it within. Because in his blood, we are made one with him. Atonement. Let's take this in celebration. Triune God, we thank you for this bread and this cup and what they represent and how you have given to us such unity. We pray that we can give in the same way. In, in, every, in, in the offering we're about to take, pray that we give robustly there because of how richly you've given to us. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.